All right, good morning. This is our 10th class, and in regards to evangelism, and we have gone to the point of looking at answering questions and objections. And so, let me ask you guys this first question. All right, what would you consider the question that you have heard the most or objection the objection that you have heard the most regarding christianity the existence of god um, about jesus christ what is the objection that you have heard the most yes sir written by man the bible's not true okay all right, anyone else ever heard that one? Yeah? Okay. I just heard that one just recently. And um, what else? What else have you heard? Yeah. Ah, that's a good one. We're going to get into, we're going to get into that, uh, both of those actually today. And then um, any others? Any others? Lack of evidence. Evidence of? Um, basically the whole truth of the Bible. The whole truth of the Bible. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, yeah. Uh, contradictions. Contradictions, yes. That's a good one. We're, we're not actually going to go into that because that probably needs its own. Um, because there are individuals... And it's interesting, when you typically go to YouTube and you're looking at videos, um, you'll see these individuals, atheists or individuals that are pointing out these contradictions. And oftentimes what I find in their arguments is their lack of knowledge of hermeneutics and looking at the context and recognizing what the testimony is being said, and, and also not seeing that in other areas of the Bible, it clearly gives an answer to what they feel is a contradiction. And so what, what I think that if we are, um, let, let me put it like this. Today, as I was finishing up going over this lesson uh, to present it to you, I felt a little depressed. And in fact, I was, as I was getting cleaned up, Jen looked at me and she's like going, sweetie, are you okay? And I'm like going, I just don't feel like I took enough time to sort of uh, bring everything together to make this like a great lesson. And she was like going, you know what? I know you spent many hours on this. I'm sure it's going to be okay. And then as I was driving here and I was thinking about it, I started recognizing that, wait a second, I am not going to be able to give you a well, I mean, all of the information that you are going to need for every question that you are going to face. I can't do that in an hour's time. What you all need to be is students. You need to be students who go. You, you get 
a question, a question that is in your mind, and you work it through to find the answers. All right? Don't come to church trying to get all of your education. You need to be the ones that are responsible for your own knowledge and your own education on these questions. All right? And trust me, there are hundreds of questions. There's websites out there that give you, you know, a hundred questions and objections. And go through and begin studying these things. Don't allow this to be the only information that you get regarding questions and objections to the Christian faith. Okay? Does that, is that fair? Is that fair? Would you agree? Does anyone disagree with that? Because I would love to hear any argument in disagreement. I think that, I mean, I know that in 2004, when I started going to the streets and doing evangelism since then, I have not even gone to the, I mean, it, like, okay, you've got the iceberg and you see the point on the iceberg and, you, and that's how it is. I still, I'm so far away from having a thorough knowledge of everything. It's something that you just have to continue working on. You have to continue practicing how you would give your argument, how you would give your delivery. You have to continue recognizing that as individuals are asking questions, that you become good at answering just their questions and not going on some rabbit hole. And you need to be specific. And so practicing and studying is so vital. So, so let's get into this. I'm going to give you just this one hour on questions and objections. Um, there's some stuff that I will talk about when we get to it a little bit later um, that I really think that we could, as a church, benefit from about, oh, two to three hours worth of teaching. I'm just, I don't know if you guys are um, know or familiar, I think the youth would be, in regards to the archaeological finds that support the Bible. If we just were to look at that, we would get, it would be, I would have to do probably three hours to go through just probably the seven main archaeological finds. All right, today I'm just going to skim over three of them. But there are so much. In fact, what you find is that so many scientists, archaeologists, they are now saying that literally with every turn of the spade, they're finding further proof of the Bible. It's amazing what they are finding. In fact, you have different archaeologists that are in the top of their field that can honestly, that will say, there is not an archaeological find that has ever contradicted the Bible. Everything that they have found has been a support to what the Bible says. All right, so the main verse that we're going to be, the whole thing about answering questions and objections comes from 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, 
honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And there's two things that I want to point out from this verse. The first thing is, is that when we give a defense, we're honoring God. We are honoring Jesus Christ. We are, in a sense, standing in the gap and proclaiming our faithfulness. And so, if we want, and we should want to as Christians, if we want to honor and glorify God, then we should be doing the second part, and that is to be good, being educated, and doing the things that need to to be able to give that defense. But also, how we do it is in gentleness and respect. Do we respect the individual? Do you respect the individual if they have an opposing opinion? I've got no problem with an individual if they don't believe what I believe. I have no problem with that. Because the only way that I came to my belief is because God himself opened my eyes, removed the veil, and allowed me to see that truth. That's the only way that I got there. And so if someone is opposed to what I am teaching, that just means that God hasn't removed the veil for, from them. And so there's no reason we should ever become disrespectful, that we should not have gentleness as we're speaking. And we should literally, it should just be presented in such a way that they can take it and just look at it and then allow the Holy Spirit to do the work from there. All right? So, we're going to go over how should we answer questions and objections. I'm going to give you five things. Five ways on how we answer questions and objections. All right? And the very first thing that I want that we should recognize is that we are going to get questions and objections. We need to be poised and unsurprised. All right? There will be. You are always going to get questions and objections. And I hope and I pray that you will get to a point to where you are excited when the question comes. All right? What do we call, call these questions in our home? God questions. When someone gives me a God question, there is something inside of me that just goes crazy. I like, get so excited. I, I'm, I'm like going, oh, yes. The door has been swung open. Now we have gone from the natural to the spiritual. Now there is an opportunity for me to begin going down this path and revealing this awesome God that I worship and, and glorify. That I, I one day look forward to being reunited with. So in 1 Corinthians 1.18 it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. All right? We need to recognize that when 
we have a good defense, when we have an answer for someone's objection or for their question, when we stand on the gospel, that is where the power is. When we stand on the word of God, that is where the power is. It is by the word of God that individuals' hearts and minds are changed. We shouldn't step away from this. We shouldn't just give evidences that do not include the Word of God. We need the Word of God as a part of our objections. And then 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. For an unbeliever, what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Anyone got the answer? Yes? They have Jesus or not, but also who is, who is inside of them? The Spirit. They are spiritually made alive. When you are an unbeliever, the Scripture says that you are spiritually dead. And it's only when they become a believer, when that supernatural event occurs and their heart and mind are changed, that heart of stone is removed and in place a heart of flesh. And what is the purpose of that? Now you recognize your sinfulness against God. Now you recognize how you have wronged a holy God and why you deserve hell. And because of that, you now are a new creation. And so when we are talking to individuals, when we are giving them the objections, we need to understand that these objections are coming from a place that is a lack of knowledge. It's, it's an inability to recognize these things. And so you, you at times will hear questions and you may think to yourself, oh my goodness, that is just not a really good question. Or you may hear things. I, I'll never forget one time um, I, I was speaking to a lady down on Fremont Street and we got to the point to where she said, you know what, I hate God. And I was like, why do you hate God? And she goes, I hate God because he took my, my grandmother. And I said, really? What do you mean he took her? She said she was 105 years old and she died. And I thought to myself, you should be happy that she had 105 years because all of us at some point will die. And I could have been critical of her in that, but I recognized that what she was really talking about was the pain over sin. Because of the sin that we have all been given through Adam, we all die. And she doesn't have an answer to that. And so that's where coming in and explaining it to her and helping to realize is that we can't escape death and we definitely cannot think that God is unloving just because of death. 
No. Because of the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, we will be reunited with Him. That's the good news. Right? You've got to learn how to turn that around. All right. Next one. Respond with gentleness and respect. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All right? You need to practice thinking or having conversations in your head with different individuals. If there's someone that you have talked to, and it's not uncommon when we go to the streets or when we get together to go and evangelize, um, say like at the Foodie Fest or we're looking at going out to the Broad Acres and sharing the gospel out there. Um, When you go, you need to think about all those encounters and begin sort of playing them through like a movie and going different directions with your answers. You need to practice these things. And that is an important. And then oftentimes one of the best things is if the brothers get together after we would share the gospel, one of the best things that we would ever do is just grab a quick bite to eat, but then we would share our encounters and sort of run off of each other how we would have responded to their particular questions or their objections. Doing that with your brothers and your sisters oftentimes help you just to gain a bigger database of answers to those objections and questions. All right? So get together with your brothers and sisters. Ask individuals questions. Um, I used to, you know, unfortunately, Brother Drew, uh, I don't know if you guys remember Drew Petiti. He was a member of our church, but he's down in Austin, Texas now. And Brother Drew, he would, we would get together for lunch um, when I worked at UMC Hospital. And every time we would get together, he would have probably about three to six questions. How would you have said this? How would you have done this? How would you, what scriptures would you use for this? And it was, that was one of the best things in just not only hearing him and how he delivered or how he answered it, but then also going through and listening to to how I would answer it and then realizing, oh, wait, there's a potential hole in that answer or that the way I answer it. And so just bouncing it off of one another is such a blessing. All right. Second Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So what do we see in this? We see that we need to be able, and I love this word, teach. You really do not know something until you're able to teach it. You need to 
understand something so well that you can explain it to an individual. All right? <laughs> my, my daughter just said that this past week. She's, she is helping a bunch of her friends in, what, Algebra 2, and she goes, they keep on questioning, how are you able to do this? And she's, she's like going, I, I can do it because I learn it in such a way with the hope of being able to teach it and to help you guys because I know that sometimes the teacher has some problems <laughs> so of being able to teach it clearly and succinctly. And so being able to teach is basically what we're trying to aim for. Whatever it is, we should be able to give it clearly. And also here, we need to be patient. And we need to endure evil. Is there ever going to be times when individuals say really mean things to us? Yeah? What's the meanest thing that anyone has ever said to you while you're sharing the gospel? What? You don't want to know. Oh, yeah, we can't say that here. We can't say that here. Yeah, you're right. Um, what's, what's the worst thing that's ever happened? What's the worst evil that you've had to endure? Painful, hateful, mm -hmm. not loving. Yep. Forcing it down people's throats. Yeah, you're just, you're just forcing this down people's throats. Yeah, yeah Judge Mel. Yeah. Um, we said we we finished. We said we're going to pray for you. Um, well, I'm going to pray to Satan for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I remember a story that um, a friend of ours. He was a um, uh, Asian doctor that was a part. Of, what was his name? Utaka. Yeah, Utaka. He was a wonderful uh, believer, came to Christ. Um, and you know how when you are that new Christian, you don't quite know what the Bible says about how you should live? Well, he joined the church for a softball game, and he brought a cooler full of beer. <laughs> but he was a new Christian, and they're like going, okay, that's, that's enough beer for both teams <laughs> And he's like, going, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But for Yutaka, he had just this sincere heart. And he was on a plane one time flying, I think it was to L.A., if I remember the story. And what ended up happening was um, he was next to this uh, gentleman, and the gentleman, the stewardess comes along with the meal, and she says, you know, would you like anything to eat? And Yutaka said, yeah, I would love something. And he gets his meal, and then she asks the guy next to him, and he goes, no, um, I'm currently fasting. And he's like going, oh, this must be another believer. And what ended up happening was um, Yutaka started a conversation said, oh, by the way, are you a Christian? And he goes, no, I'm a Satanist. And he's like, what? He goes, why are you fasting? He said, our particular coven is actually fasting right now so that there will be a thousand pastors that fall into sexual sin and their church is decimated. 
And that was a realization that there is a war going on. There is an absolute war. And so we need to recognize that there are going to be times when evil is coming against us. And we need to be ready to deal with that. All right. Number three. Oh, there it is. Like going, it looks like the clock stopped. Okay, number three, confidence in the power of God's gospel. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul said to the Christians there in Rome and to all believers, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to, Greek, to the Greek. And what this is saying is... Um, can I borrow your water? Sorry. What this is saying is, is that the power that is in the gospel comes through us recognizing the gospel, spiritually being made new, and that is the power that God is looking at giving his elect. He wants his elect to come and to receive that power. And so when we are answering objections, we need to make sure that our primary uh, point that we're standing on is the gospel. Don't get away from the gospel. Don't go too far. You can give some of these evidences. You can give some of these things that we're going to talk about in a second. But when it comes down to it, you need to stay on the gospel because that's really where the power is in evangelism. All right. The next one, ask questions. Um, we have three different times here that when Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the scribes and the re religious leaders, his natural response in some cases was to ask a question back. How many of you have ever sort of learned that that is a good tool when you are in not an argument or having a discussion or debate? Asking questions to an individual's question can be one of the most powerful things. Now, there was a purpose in Jesus doing it because what they were trying to do was trap him, and he was basically just sort of going around their trap. Um, we see in Matthew twenty-two twenty, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? In that moment, Jesus is being asked, you know, do you, well, do you go ahead and give the tax? Are you going to give this tax, the Roman tax? And Jesus was like, going, well, whose inscription is on the coin? Well, that's Caesar. And of course, for the Jew, that's, pfft, you don't have any allegiance to Caesar. And Jesus comes back and he says, give to Caesar's what Caesar's, but give to the Lord what is his. And so he answers them well in that. And the questions that we ask back sort of open that door for us to do that. Um, when the rich young ruler came and asked, um, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, 
what did Moses command you regarding the Ten Commandments, right? And also another time he says, why do you call me when the, when the rich young ruler comes up to him and, and asks him, you know, good teacher, he's like, why do you call me good? There's no one who is good except God. And so oftentimes being ready to come back with a question to their question actually does a couple things. Number one, it sort of slows the pace of the, the conversation. But it also, what it can do is it can help clarify and identify specific um, terms and what their true question is. Because oftentimes when you are talking to an individual, the, the question that they're giving may be a very general question, but the real question that they're asking is somewhere hidden within that question. Does that make sense? And so oftentimes asking the question to them sort of helped you get to what is their specific question that they're really struggling with. All right? And so we've got to learn how to use questions to our benefit, to help us. And then the last thing, we, answers question, we answer questions humbly. Get used to saying, if someone asks you a question, I don't know. But follow it back up with, but I know where to go to find it. Or if, you'll, if, if you're talking to someone like a coworker, you can tell them, hey, give me a day or two and I'll come back with an answer. You can easily say that. But be humble enough to recognize when you don't have a good answer, when you have not actually looked at that and made a determination on what is, God, what is the truth from God regarding that question. If you don't know, just admit it. That's fine. In fact, I've had individuals that said, really, you don't know the answer? Yeah. And they're like, that's cool. Because in a sense, I wasn't this individual who was trying to portray myself as knowing all the answers. We don't know all the answers. We can't know all the answers. If, huh? Right, right. That's where the humility comes in. All right. Let's get on to the common questions and objections. We're going to hit three of the big ones. All right. The veracity of the Bible. Um, evil, the question of evil, and the existence of God. All right. Um, when you think about the veracity of the Bible and how can we say that this is the word of God? All right. We we need to have an answer for this. We need to. I mean, because when it comes down to it, I mean, we have sola scriptura. All right. That is basically saying that we know what God says to humanity because what the Bible says. We stand on the Bible. We don't defer. We don't 
go against it, we stand on the Bible. And so, to say that this is the Word of God, we've got to be able to give a defense for this. All right? So, um, how can I believe in the Bible? That would be one of the questions. Um, is the Bible true? And then, of course, the last one, well, the Bible was written by men. How can it be true? Right? Or the Bible has changed over the centuries. You know, it's been copied and copied and copied, and it keeps on changing, and whatever this particular um, individual wants to put in there, they put in there, and they keep on changing it. You know, you know that telephone game. You've played that game, right? Well, here's what we need to look at, okay? First off, if we look at the Bible, there's something special about the Bible compared to all other books of antiquities. Now, when we're talking about books of antiquities, we're talking about books that were written around the time when Christ was here or earlier. And when we're looking at them, what we see is that the um, textual scholars, they say that there are three things that they look for to determine if a particular text that was originally written around or before the time of Christ should have, they, they evaluate on three measures. The first one is the number of manuscripts. All right? And a manuscript is a copy that was made of the original. So when an individual wrote a particular book or a particular thing, if it was so important that it was copied, that would be a manuscript. All right? And so the very first thing that you do is you look at how many manuscripts do we have regarding this book. All right. The second thing that we look at is how consistent are all those manuscripts to each other? All right. So if I lay out, if I have four manuscripts on a certain book and I lay them out, how much do they all say the exact same thing? And you can make a determination on what is the percentage that it is saying the exact same thing. How different is it between them? All right, does that make sense? The third thing, the third thing would be of the manuscripts that we have, what is the earliest one compared to when it was originally written? Because the longer time frame that we have there, the greater likelihood is that there is potential for changes that it it may not be as reliable as one that is a shorter time distance all right so this is actually if you want to study questions and objections this is one of the books i'd recommend getting um, this is one that i recently this last summer one of my hospice patients. It was interesting, I don't know why, in our conversations, but he said, do you know I wrote a paper on the Bible and whether or not it was the Word of God? And I said, really? I would love to read it. And so 
His sources were the Reader's Digest and a couple of other places. But basically what it came down to, his summation was, is we really don't know. We don't know if it is the Word of God or not. And I said, you know, what if I could give you some information that would probably sort of challenge that? What if I gave you some evidence? And he was like, yeah, I would love that. And so when I brought him the book, we would go through it when I was meeting with him. And um, I, I wish I could say that he came to Christ, but I don't believe he did. I, I don't know. He never came to a point where he said, yeah, this is definitely the word of God. But you know what? When the, yep. Oh, Oh, Josh, Josh McDowell, the new evidence that demands a verdict. Josh McDowell, new evidence that demands a verdict. Um, if those of you don't know Josh McDowell, he was a lawyer that decided that he was going to put God on trial and he was going to prove that the Bible and Christianity was all bunk. And he ended up looking at the evidence and going, Jesus Christ is God. <laughs> and... So then he went the other directions. If Jesus and the Bible were on trial, what evidence would I bring as, as their lawyer to represent them? And that's what this book is. And it is a great, great book. And in that, you have this particular graph that you see on your paper. And it looks at a handful of books from antiquities. All right? Now, these particular books that we have here these are considered the most reliable books. But look at the difference, all right? The book that has the second most manuscripts is Homer's Iliad, the very first one that you see. There are 643 manuscripts. Now, when you say a manuscript, remember, though, that it is partial and complete. The more complete that you have, the better the more partial you have. And so when you come to Homer's Iliad, there are some partial and some complete, all right? But that is the most. When you look at the rest of them, you see um, history um, is only eight, eight, seven, ten. You know, Livy's History of Rome had one partial but 19 complete copies. And that's special because that's rare to have that percentage of complete copies. All right. And when you look at it, all of a sudden you get down to the bottom and you see that there are 5,366. The amazing thing was this graph was originally put together in the 1980s and now we have over double. All right. The number of manuscripts that we have for the actual Bible. And, and let's take into consideration not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. All right. Now, from when it was written, or no, we should see what percentage of, when you look at actually Homer, that one thing that they don't include in here is how much they say the same. But when you line up the manuscripts, the, all the manuscripts, about 70% of it says the exact same. 70%.
So there is this 30% that individuals can say, well, maybe, maybe not, right? Then we look at the New Testament. When we look at the Old Testament and we line up the manuscripts for the Old Testament, what it actually says that is absolutely the same is a 96.7. Big difference. But then when we get to the New Testament, we see that it is 98 point, I think it's 6. I have to look at the term again, or the evidence again. But what you see is a complete difference. So for the book, the second most reliable book, Homer's Iliad, you see that there's almost like a huge overwhelming amount of consistency in the Bible that is not evident even in Homer, let alone the rest of these. But then the time gap, all right? What you end up seeing here is that, and this is where the time difference has, has changed because scholars have started looking more and more at the New Testament manuscripts, and as they're finding new things, they've got the New Testament within 30 years of the time when the Gospels were originally written. That's the earliest manuscript. When you look at Homer's Iliad, there is a 400-year, four-millennial difference, or not millennial, century difference. Four centuries difference. And so this is, so in a sense, when we look at this, we can say at least this. The Bible is the most reliable book from antiquities. What I would suggest that we could even say is that God himself has preserved his word. He has preserved his word so that you, as a believer, can stand on it, recognize that it is true. All right? Now, let's look at archaeology. Um, how many of you are familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? All right? Yeah, you guys better know. I talked an entire class about that one. <laughs> so, who, who could say what, the, tell us what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Yes? The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collect of very ancient manuscripts, one copy being a Isaiah, a really, really well-kept scroll, which was dated to be somewhere around B.C. 100, a copy of the two, book of Isaiah. Oh, right, around and it's really interesting because the way they date manuscripts is they don't necessarily always have like a date written on them, but they look yeah. at stuff like what the materials are made of, mm -hmm. what's the composition Ink. of the ink that they used, what was the type of font, if you will, that they used mm -hmm. uh, uh, to write everything because there were different fonts that were utilized during different periods. So usually within a range of like 50 years or something like that, they can determine how old something um, is and stuff like that. So when looking at these different uh, scrolls and stuff like that, they're really old. And when we compare them to the Masoretic texts, they are—they uh, were kept. They were transmitted very well because the Masoretic texts, like they go back to like around eighty one thousand one hundred. And if you compare them to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's very minimal differences, thus showing that uh, it was faithfully preserved and stuff like that. Yeah. Also, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were actually discovered in 19, I, I want to say 1946, and actually this will be the other book, Is Atheism Dead? 
This is a book from Eric McTaxis, and if you read Bonhoeffer, um, he's written a number of other things. Um, he actually wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post that talked about the fine-tuning of the earth back in, I think it was in 2014. And what ended up happening was he put it out, he and his family went on their Christmas vacation to do some skiing, and while he was in a restaurant, a young man said, are you Eric Metaxas? And he's like, yes. He goes, I read that opinion piece in the Washington Post. That was the most incredible thing. We had a huge debate last night between my, a couple of my friends who are Christians with our other friends who are atheists. And that, like, was the most compelling thing to our atheistic friends. And he was like, wow, that's good. Next thing he knows, he gets a call from his, while he's on vacation, from his publicist saying, um, your particular piece is now one of the most shared that has ever been by Washington Post. In fact, by the time he got the highest that they had ever had and uh, anything shared on like social media, the most shares that they had ever had was 300,000. Once his piece got to 600,000, Washington Post stopped ke keeping track and no longer did that because they were absolutely amazed that so many people were interested in the fine tuning of the earth and how it pointed to God and his creation. Now, he ended up putting this book together. He was one of those individuals that was influenced by the Time uh, magazine that said, Is God Dead? back in 1966, 66 or 64. And basically, in that article, they or articles, group of articles, they went through all these things basically saying, No, there is no God. Look at what science is proving. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And what he shows in this book are five different things. One of them is being that archaeology is proving the, the historicity of the Bible. And so one of those is the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found by a young shepherd boy. And it was a group of caves in... I always mispronounce this. Do you, um, Qumran? Qumran, yeah, Qumran. And one of the things that they found in there, they found basically every particular book of the Old Testament. Portions of every particular book of the Old Testament, except for the book of Ruth. But in it, they also found the complete Isaiah scroll. And the significance of this, remember, I'm, I always say this, God writes the best stories. What ended up happening at that time is there was this real liberal sort of movement by individuals that were saying, hey, the Bible may be some, some fables, may be some myths in here. It may be similar to like the Greek writings about the gods. Maybe we can't rely upon the Bible. And what ended up happening was they get this great Isaiah scroll. And if you were to read it literally line by line compared to what we have today, it says the exact same thing. And, and that is 2,200 years 
wouldn't you think that it would have changed? Not unless God was protecting it. His protection to His Word. His Word is so special that He is going to protect it through time for the purpose of blessing His people and helping others come to a knowledge of Him. So, also, discovery of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. The, in this particular book, he does, Eric Metaxas does a great job of showing the work of the professor at the University of New Mexico who ended up in his hotel room while in the promised land reading the scripture and he is there in the portion of Genesis where it's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and he's like going, wait, there's a problem. Where they're saying Sodom is, that can't be right. And he started to go with the group and he presented it to the archaeologist that he was with and said, hey, do you guys want to spend some time on the weekends just going to different sites? Because I think that the location isn't here where they say, but it's actually a different place. And so what they ended up doing is on the weekends, they would go and investigate. They started taking samples. And finally, in I think it was 2006, they ended up discovering Sodom. Now, they did not publish anything until 2014. Every year they would go back and they would dig more and go more. And what they ended up finding in this particular location, as they dug through the strata to get down to the later or earlier in earlier years, there was one section where there was five foot of ash. And not only that, but they saw something that only they could see with an electron microscope. And that was is that the pottery that they found, which was blackened on the outside, it actually had something very special with the sand in the pottery. See, when there is heat that is over 2,000 degrees, it takes the actual sand and the glass and it turns it into a special um, special substance called Trinitarian, something like that. Sorry, I don't have that name. But what that shows, the only time that they had ever seen that was when they were exploding the Trinity bomb in New Mexico and the heat from those detonations would actually take sand and turn it into this substance. And what they realized that there was a cataclysmic event that was so intense that it actually took those pieces of sand and turned it into that. And there weren't any hydrogen bombs at that time. And so they were like going, oh my goodness, what could it be? And then finally the researchers were like going, wait a second, this almost matches up with what we saw in 1908 up in Siberia. There was a asteroid that they're estimating that was over 18 foot wide that detonated basically two or three miles above the Earth's crust. And when it did, it actually destroyed, I think they said 18 million trees. 
the intensity and the burning was so intense that you could still read a newspaper outside in London, England because of the heat and the light that was coming from the burning. That would be similar or consistent to what we saw in Sodom and Gomorrah. <sighs> All right. We've got, let me just run through these. Evil. I'm not going to go into evil. What I'm going to do is, if you are interested, one of the best messages that I ever heard on this was from Dr. John MacArthur at Shepherd's Conference. And it was at that time that I realized how God blesses certain individuals, not only as they prepare the message and show the truth from the Bible, but also are able to speak it so clearly. I left that night from Shepherd's Conference just changed. I recognized the goodness of God that even with evil, He is glorified and He is honored. If you are interested, I've got 10 copies up here. Come on up and grab one of these copies. But this is a good one um, to have. And then in regards to the existence of God, I'm just going to say this. We just got four minutes. Um, Romans 1, 19 through 21. This is the scripture that you stand on when it comes to those individuals that say there is no God. You stand on this scripture. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And the, the them there are those who do not believe in God. Because God has shown it to them. Even ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. In fact, the next verse talks about how they became, as they turned away from God, they became fools. And so that's why we say that April 1st is National Atheist Day. So, um, also look at here, Hebrews 3, 3 through 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. We know that there is a creator because of creation. You know that when you look at a painting, that there was a painter. Um, if you ever climb the picture that you see there, if you ever climb to Angel's Peak in Zion, what you'll see up there are these rocks that are placed on each other. Now, I can honestly say that if I took a hundred atheists up there and I said, did these actually occur naturally? I don't think you would get one that would say, oh yeah, that just happened over the billions and billions of years. No, that didn't happen. You see the formations, you see everything, you know that someone placed it on there. In fact, the likelihood is when you get up there, you'll see someone placing some up there at that moment. 
So we know that there is a creator because of that. All right. I'll let you do the studying, but please be faithful in studying yourself. Do the reading. Try to make yourselves well-educated on being able to give a defense. And if you can't, then go back and pray and study more. Okay? Let's pray.